Hey, this is Ari Sale Foreman, and you're listening to Sat Your Day Radio. Now, that's Sat Your Day, not Saturday. Fix your ears. Me not know about Lee Cowini and World Cup. And them not the, the like how we are tired and timers. They don't like when you get a huge shell world up. What? Where them ever do ya now when the men pick them girl up? Where them ever do ya now? Are we still a win? Are we still a win? We still a win. We still a win. Are we still a win? Them girl keep the black thing shining. We still a win. Are we still a win? Unruly thing. We still a win. Are we still a win? Them finna want say a worldwide thing. What up, everyone? You're listening to Saturday Radio. My name's NKNX. Hey, boy. And we got a real special show today. Oh. We got Air Ari. What's up, man? <laughs> Air. You have What's Air up? Ari. It's funny because I actually get called all those different things, so it's quite I funny. heard You said you got, you, uh, people call you Ori, right? Ori, yeah. Ori is a common thing. Philly, um, it depends on where you're from in Philly. There's many different accents, and uh, in particular my neighborhood, but no, all over Philly, Ari is a very hard A. Ari. It's not really a northeast kind of yo, yo. It doesn't have that heaviness. So, Ari, people just like, Ori, right? I'm like, yeah, Ori, like Oreo cookie. Yeah. Or something. And anything. And Corey, some people call me. It, funny Corey. shit. In Jamaica, when, I, when I'm down in Jamaica, um, people introduce me as Ari down there. And the other Jamaicans think my name is Harry. Because, you know, you generally don't. Yeah, Ari. Uh, Ari, mm. so then they introduced me to oh. somebody who's not Jamaican as Ari, and then they call me Harry because they're adjusting for the for the right. accent. Yeah. So the next thing you know, I'm Harry. <laughs> Fuck it. Oh, Jesus. If there's nobody else around that answers to a name, I'll pretty much answer to it. It's uh, Corey, Ori, Ari, Harry. Some dyslexic people I've heard call me Ira, which is my I, name. Oh backwards. man, nice. <laughs> that's that's I, that's another level of I like Jewish that. name I like that, that one. I would have to graduate to. I think. I think my mother being Episcopalian, I can't graduate to that level. <laughs> Ira. But that's your that's your full name, Ari. Just Ari. Yeah, it's nice. Despite what all the Instagram maniacs berated me with, my name's Ari. No, your name's like Aristotle or Ari- Ariadna or, or, you know, like there's like 14 consonants and three vowels with Ari in front of it. Yeah. It's Ari. A, a, pe- pe- a lot of people have been trying to buy your name too, right? Yeah, man. What's the craziest offer you've gotten? 30K. I don't think it was real though. I honestly think it was. I think it was. Yeah. There's a lot of people that, like, hey, it's like, it's like you know, on uh, you see in a movie when the guy's like grabbing something out of the hand while handing the cash off, like it's this. Like, how do you do that digitally? They have to make a leap of faith and send it. And I don't think so. It's usually like some some sad little kid who's just like, my, I'm Ariana Grande's number one fan and. I'll give you $72.87 that I saved. And it's, so, it's so adorable. You know? like, <laughs> this guy be like, no, kid, get a life. Get, get a life. <laughs> no, I, t- I, 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 I hope you really say that to them. No, I don't. <laughs> but that's, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a cynical person, but I'm really not that evil. And it's, you know, all the shit I've been through in my life, the homelessness and all that shit as a kid, I never made me that jaded. Mm. Uh, it made me very compassionate. And, 
Only when the assholes come at me. There's a couple of assholes out there really come at me with some crazy shit. And, uh, you know, I'm no tough guy, but I'm one call away. Huh. Here you go. I just don't, I'm not, like I said, no, I'm soft like a cupcake out here, but doesn't mean I don't got a lot of bakers around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll fuck it up. <laughs> yep. Uh, how the fuck did I get segue to that shit? <laughs> Life. Yeah, I'm, sp- I'm this spun is the be- out, the, man. This is the beauty of podcasting. I'm over. I'm spun out. <laughs> it's your turn, young buck. So, so you grew up in, in Philly? Uh, yes and or... no. I grew up in L.A. Oh, okay. I was born in Oakland. Oh, wow. My two... Huh? Oh, wow. That's... Because yeah, you always talk about Philly, so... I do, because Philly's where I'm from. That's where I feel that I'm from. That's the, that's the place that molded me. Uh, my two brothers and my sister, my mother... My father, everyone on both sides of the family are all Philly people. And they packed up a VW van in 1967 or 68. And then they rolled out to San Francisco to be hippies. And so the cheap spot to live was the hood in Oakland, you know. So they moved out to Oakland. I was born in 69. And then soon after I was born, they moved down to L.A. Because my pop got a job down there. My, my pop is... Uh, was in med school uh, to become a doctor and my mother was in the projects with three kids and my mother met my pop at a party and uh, I think I really you know she never admitted to it but it seemed pretty clear by the way shit ended up that she saw a way out you know it was a good dude who was a nerd and went to med school his sisters didn't even go to school like that and so she just saw a way out from having kids in the projects so she bounced and they, when they ended up out there, it was sort of like a hippie dream come true for her. This guy loved her kids, and mm. so they made me out there. And they, he got a job down in L.A. once he became a physician. And uh, I grew up smack dab in Hollywood in the 70s, wow. which was f- fucking wild. Wild. And um, my parents separated. That The, the shit just got really crazy. A lot of... A lot of drugs and alcohol, pills. It was all mostly pills. Me, you know, weed and cocaine, all that stuff leads to. But pills were like really the growing trend in the seventies. Really, mm. Placidils and Tuinols and all this, you know, this shit like shit I never got into. You know, I was too young. But my siblings were a little older, so it was quite a crazy thing. And my parents being so different. My mom being this Episcopalian, uh, culturally German Welsh type of a woman. And my father being of uh, Russian Jewish descent, you know, like immigrants who came here with nothing. And my grandfather worked as a bag boy for food fair and worked his way up into like, you know, a regular old, like working class, middle class house and put his son into med school. Like the fucking ultimate immigrant dream. Let's see. And Sounds like a, that's a typical story. It is. It's a very American wow. story. And but, you know, the hippies fucked everybody up. So Wow. Um, and so L.A. really molded me, man. L.A. is an incredible place. There's really nothing like it. And the L.A. and New York of then is not, are not, who they, not what they are now. So it's a very different thing. My family being from Philly, when my parents separated when I was young, and my mom sort of just went back to her ways, we ended up homeless. Um, I guess this is probably... A, it was either the end of 79 or beginning of 80. Um, some crazy shit went down with my sister and she did some dumb shit and 
we ended up having to move around a bit and then we were living in those like hooker motels on sunset and then you know off of highland and and then eventually you know the little bit of money we had ran out and my mom was like crafting bad checks like back then you could pay with a check and it would take three days for the check to clear oh wow so you could you had time to like yeah it was it was before it bounced yeah so you could hustle basically so you you would have a home for three days and if you hustled hard enough and said oh i don't know why it bounced you could might get a week or two out of that and so you know i mean it's a different kind of homeless right when you're living in those type of motels you're not technically homeless i guess and then we had this this car it was a vw dasher and that shit that thing was crazy we packed all our clothing up in there that we had everything got we had a storage unit but then that eventually got taken away so i lost everything from my childhood baby pictures everything wow and then we were in the car and we'd sleep in the car and we'd go to a motel if we could and we'd sleep in a construction site because my mom had a boyfriend that like worked odd construction jobs and he was just up alcoholic drug addict ended up killing himself many years later he tried to kill himself a couple times when i was a kid that shit was crazy but um, but it, L.A. really formed me in many ways, but really scarred me in many ways. So it was a very different experience. And my family, being Philly people, were very Philly-centric. They didn't have classic Philly accents. My father had a little bit of a Philly accent, but not really. And I, I'm not really sure why that is. My oldest brother, who uh, grew up in South Philly, my mom is from, for all you Philly people, the, the, the projects that are now gone, there's one building left that's been converted, Fifth and Washington. Um, I'm from G-Town in Philly, but they, my brother grew up as a kid running up and down the Italian market there, which is a crazy place, especially back then, you know, it's still kind of, it's fun while it's sort of like a cultural phenomenon thing now, but anyways, so my brother had a little bit of that South Philly accent, a little bit of an Italian accent, but other than that, we were culturally Philly people living in LA, so it was a very displaced kind of a thing, our house was not, our, the, the culture of our house, it was chaotic, it was very Philly. Hmm. So when my parents separated, my father bounced around for a little bit, and then he eventually ended up back in Philly. Me and my mom just continued to bounce around in whatever situation, living wherever we could. And then I went, you know, my pop wanted to see me. He moved back, and my mom was like, hey, you want to go see your dad? And I was like, yeah. And for some reason, when it came time for me to go, and I went to get on that plane, I was terrified. I was 12 at this point. You know, I'd been homeless for a couple of years, so... Who knows what the fuck was emotionally going on with me, but I was terrified to get on that plane, and she forced me on the plane. When I got to the other side of Philly, I just didn't go back. It was stable. My father here, my father was a working-class doctor. If, and people can't believe such a thing. That, you know, like, why go back to Doctors that? in the hood aren't millionaires that come down to the hood. They're generally bad lawyers or just working-class lawyers. You know? mm -hmm. and so my dad was just, he had burnt out from L.A., and he was just in Philly working a clinic job taking care of old people so he never had a private practice you know he tried to have a private practice once and failed flopped out lost everything and so I, here I was just in Philly in, in G-Town in Germantown uh, the only white kid in the neighborhood and, and coming from the streets of LA where most where I was in Hollywood was mostly Mexican mm -hmm. moving to a black neighborhood in Philly very culturally different and I got there at 12 and that's kind of when you start socializing I met my friends in, in my neighborhood, and Philly really formed what I was going to be for the rest of my life in terms of many things that I, you know, that I equate myself to. And then that juxtaposition of 
that I brought with me of LA, I had to kind of get that off. I mean, it was bad enough I was the only white kid in the neighborhood, but then to be like, hey, you know, hang 10 Billy over here. <laughs> um, it was just, it was weird. So that I shed that off of myself pretty quick, but I still say chocolate. I don't say chocolate or chocolate. But I do Philly style, I say water. Water. Oh, yeah, water. I, I'm not too familiar with like Philly. It, it, Jersey, we say water. Water. Like with a D. You, water. Well, everybody right. does like, pretty much. It, there's some people out west who will really say it with a T. This is awkward as shit. Water. <laughs> Do you have a glass of water? No, I don't have it because you said it that way. I'm not even sure what that is. You said every letter. Yeah. <laughs> but, anyways, I, I know that was a, a long bit of verbal diarrhea there but generally with these things they never show these interviews they never show up and I've had some crazy things people just think I'm bullshitting you know I had one dude that worked for me in my marketing company who said I made all this shit up and I was like well, you wanna go hang with my mom you wanted to she made had, your background she's dead now but yeah like the, all these things they just people just can't imagine shit like this and the story is even crazier than I'm even saying it it's just if I say it it won't even sound real and People's realities are, are just, it's very interesting. When I moved to New York and we were doing On The Go magazine, me and Espo and Steve Powers, for you that don't know him as Espo, um, we would come up here and we were broke and we were working jobs and doing the magazine and we were interviewing, you know, Redman and Puffy and, uh, you know, whoever, De La Soul and whoever was there. Mob Deep. Mob Deep, Mob Deep yeah. yeah. Mob <laughs> Deep, absolutely. And, uh, I would go back down to Philly occasionally and, you know, promote the magazine because we had, Steve had started it there and, and added me on and we moved it to New York because this is where the industry was. And we go down to Philly and I would tell people like, yeah, you know, we got an interview this. And they'd be like, that boy lying. He always lying. He's talking shit because their reality is one that, it's not like New York where you actually go to a party and see, you know, a celebrity. You might see mm -hmm. any kind of celebrity or a rapper or a singer. You might, it might be anybody. But in Philly, two hours away, that is not the reality. And they resented the fact that you would even mention such a thing, so it had to be a lie. And it was just kind of said, most people believe you, but you would run into people who, it's just not the case. And But wildly enough is then there'd be rumors of like, I produced, it's, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia or some shit like that. It would always be some... <laughs> Wait, like the, the thing that you could actually do is like yeah. interview somebody, which uh -huh. the... Record labels want you to do, and, they, and they, you do it for free. That's not real. But then you know that boy get money. He's he must be doing. It's <laughs> and it's and it's really just that. Like everywhere that I've lived, L.A., Philadelphia, New York, all very different realities. Mm -hmm. New York is is more interconnected to the world, and even if you're really like you stay in the borough and you stay in the block, you still get on a train and see diversity socio-economic diversity you know it's not just oh another white person who's poor down the block you know or a Mexican or a Puerto Rican or it's New York you know you can be on welfare and be standing next to a millionaire or a billionaire because they're going to take the train too and that's not a reality anywhere else in this country even in LA you might go to a supermarket if you go to a certain area in Hollywood or something and you might see you know whatever you know a Kardashian or something you might just on the humbug, they would be in there getting a power bar and a juice. But that would be the only sort of, you'd have to kind of be in their neighborhood and then find a common ground. And in Philly, there really wasn't that dynamic. So, I mean, I, you know, there's a certain amount of starstruck even for us when we 
came up here. In L.A., I would run into people as a kid. When I was homeless, I had Robin Williams almost step on me. Not literally. It was like we, me and my mom were wandering around. We didn't have a place to stay, and we were wandering through West Hollywood somewhere past a comedy club. And he was in, this was like, they used to have this show called Mork and Mindy. He was, was, had been successful. It was like a sitcom show that yeah. made him. So then from there, his stand-up really blew the fuck up because he was always a stand-up comic. And I, we were wandering the streets in West Hollywood, I'm pretty sure. And we were walking by some club, and it was a, I guess it was a comedy club. I didn't know it at the time. It had an awning. And the door just came flying open, and this dude just damn near sideswiped me. You know, almost hit my... And, you know, I'm little. I was just looking up, and I was like, Mork! <laughs> you know, that's the character he played. I was like, Mork! And he was like, you know, he fixed his face, like, Hi! I just looked at I didn't know what else to say, and he kept going. <laughs> but years later, before he died, he came over here to Miss Lily's, my friend's restaurant over here. And we were in there in the variety store when it was there. And he came in with like a couple of young dudes that were like weird guide entourage type dudes or something. And I, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't get starstruck. But I was just like, man, I got to tell you something. And I told him the story. Yeah. And he was just like, he looked at me, he's like, wow, that's fucking crazy. He's like, it's good to see you again. I was like, you, you so don't know. So casual. Wow. Yeah, and he, you know, he said we exchanged a few more pleasantries and a couple of details, and he was gone. And later that year, he was dead. Jeez. It was fucking great. It's like one of those. But you got to tell him. Hey, man, I didn't get rich with money, but I certainly got rich with experience and stories. Let me tell oh my you. Oh, God. Mm. Fuck. But it was really, that's the type of shit you could even do in L.A. in that situation right. where you could be... You could run into that. And New York and L.A. are the only two places I've ever seen that have that. I would imagine Paris, London, inter true international cities. But in mm. Philly, you know, this huge city, you know, with all this talent and all these great people, there's just, the talent doesn't stay, it leaves. Hmm. That's crazy. Anyways, does that relate to sneakers? The, the last thing I was expecting you to say was that Robin Williams story. <laughs> like, you that's know, crazy. It, had I not been a kid that, you know, looked, that thought he was this great character on TV, I wouldn't even have known who he was. Lord right. knows who I probably had seen otherwise. Mm -hmm. My parents were wild as shit, and my mom had me in bars and all kinds of shit when I was a kid, so I probably saw all kinds of people. Even some... I, I, I'm not into punk rock music. I'm Probably none of you guys are either, but there's some group called the Circle Jerks, which is sort of like old yeah, school. Yeah, I know Circle Jerks. I went to their second album release party. I was probably nine years old. <laughs> I know. <laughs> My sister was like 16, and she was dating some dude that was like 20, I think. And he was like, I don't know, I, I think he might have been Filipino or something, but he was, he was locked into sort of like different communities. He was locked into his community, and then he was locked into punk rock community. And they were dating, and he was like, I'm going to take you out. And I think it's always, you know, you got the little brother, you want to be look good to the girl, you know, my sister... Um, sometimes I'd end up on like movie dates with her and shit like that and we ended up at this fuck he's like yeah we're going to this party it's a record re album release party I don't know shit about what was going on <laughs> so we get there and it was uh, it was like a sound stage kind of a thing like a studio sound it was just really bare somewhere right in Hollywood right off it was like off a of sunset or somewhere like that and we go in and they have this one of those deli plates, you know, like those big deli plates. It's got like meat rolled up or whatever. <laughs> like really fucking ratchet. And like 
condiments and lettuce garnish and like you know I mean it's punk rock music they probably had like a fifty dollar budget yeah and and it was it was kind of a big space so it wasn't really crowded unless we got there late. I'm not really sure but it was enough people and then these dudes were drunk and fucked up and who knows maybe they're on coke they seen one the, the singer dude was hype as shit and they something went down and something and somebody from the press said something. And this is no fucking lie. My well, I'm atheist, so my hand to God ain't really gonna work for you, is it? Um, but this dude, these dudes did something, got into a fucking circle, and started fucking circle jerking. I bullshit you not. Just like the name. Oh my god. No, no way. bullshit. <laughs> I couldn't believe. The, and now, the mind name. you, I'm like whatever I am, nine years old. And I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? <laughs> <laughs> and me, I'm the you know, I'm the only one Where'd in there that's me, probably got any sense at this point. I'm like, <laughs> what's going wait, on? Wait a minute. So you know, at this point, I'm backing way up. I'm across. <laughs> like, it started right here, and before you knew it, I was. It felt like I was a mile away, at least in my head. It's like, and we're done. Then you know, I guess that was the gag. You know, it's punk rock, 1979. Everybody's yeah, trying Jesus. to be that guy. Oh my god. And you know, so that that gave a different meaning to the group. <laughs> to me instantly <laughs> because it was very literal and I, I wondered if you know maybe the, they weren't really about the music maybe they're about you know like group yeah circle jerk it was one and done with that one <laughs> um and you know we had some other punk rock clubs and shit that they would have like storefronts and shit punk yeah. rock was not exactly welcome place I didn't even know because meanwhile I was back here playing Earth Wind and Fire and like right. doing the hustle with my other brother so I don't know. <laughs> wow. So yeah. so Ari, like I guess like present time, like where are we right now? Um, yeah. Physically? Re- yeah, where are we physically? And I just want people to like, kind of like, get an idea. We're in my chalet. Of, it's of about fifteen thousand square feet, and you guys should see it. There's three floors. One's made completely of glass. <laughs> yeah. No, we're in my three hundred square foot apartment in uh, Soho, New York City. Um, I've been here 16 years, did a bid in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where it was cheap before it got cool. <laughs> Three bedrooms for $600 was a great deal. Wow. Even back then. Oh, my um, God. And I, at Williamsburg got so looking expensive, I moved Yeah, there. we're looking for that. <laughs> yeah, you're not finding it. You guys, you guys don't have the tenacity for that. But there's deals out there. It's just that they're, it's the landlords who just, you have to talk to them. They're not putting ads out. So, mm-hmm. But... Most landlords suck. There's a few that are great. You might find it, but what's your background? Do you speak any other languages? I don't. Well, I'm, I was actually going to ask you what, what you're, but you said you were German. I'm, I'm, a whole bunch I'm of so culturally mixed up that it's, uh, it's I, kind of recently it dawned on me. I, was, I always have this question. People are like, are you Italian? In Philly, they would think I'm Italian or Puerto Rican. Yeah. In New York, I've been all kinds of things. Um, and... I was always, for the most part, told Pennsylvania, Dutch, Welsh, German, which is all kind of the same on my mother's side, Harrisburg people that moved to Philly, and then my father's side, Russian Jewish, from an area that was called White Russia, which doesn't exist anymore. It's on the border there, you know, like Lithuania, Latvia, that kind of... Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, true American, I'm just a fucking mutt. And the, the, the situation there is, is that my two brothers and my sister are Italian. They have an Italian father. So they were raised Catholic. My mother was raised Episcopalian. By the time I came along, my father had been raised Jewish, but had converted to Hinduism. 
So it was this super culturally diverse, religious diverse. So it was just sort of agnostic. Yeah. Um, with people sort of, you know, we grew up, I grew up with Christmas, you know, I didn't have Hanukkah or anything. My father did Hanukkah one year just like feeling culturally, I guess, um, melancholy, just wanted to reminisce. And it just, I was like, this does not fuck with Christmas. This is not, this is not doing, this candle, uh, this candelabra, you know, is not really going to make up for that tree over there. So, nah, nah. so Hinduism, and, like, what? Like, well, he was a hippie, you know what I mean? Okay. So, and my mother, was a hippie in the, in that she was just really kind of dysfunctional. So hippie worked for her because hippies were sort of dysfunctional. They were anti-society. And my mom was already just that because, she, you know, she just was that way. Her parents, her mother was, her mother was evil. But her father, they're both alcoholics, but her father was a really, really nice guy. You know, uh, vet of World War II. And I don't know if he was in the Korean War too. I'm not sure. Wow. And just really great guy that drank himself to death you know love me great guy but so it was very every part of my family had a different cultural thing going on and then having grown up in hollywood and then spending a chunk of that in a in a very diverse street and then down into into um further deeper into hollywood as you get down in from franklin to fountain fountain was sort of like that was all mexican neighborhood there and moved right into the the Clanton and Rebels, uh, Clanton 14th Street and Rebels 13th Street. They don't exist anymore. I, I'm not sure. Maybe they got rolled up in the Playboys or 18th Street. I don't really know my L.A. change. But, they, you know, running around with the Pee Wees and that gang shit. And then I think I was in Eagle Rock for a couple months. And So there was all, there was all this different stuff. So there's this sort of ethnic, ethnic makeup that I am, which is white, but... The, the Jewish side doesn't... I'm not Jewish, because you have to be Jewish. You're only Jewish if your mother's Jewish. And my mother's Episcopalian. Uh, so that immediately, even though my name was Jewish, it made me not Jewish. So there was no Jewish connection there culturally, and no bar mitzvah, synagogue, that type of shit. And then on the Episcopalian side, they didn't really... They, they, nobody ever made me feel bad, but they never were trying to give me anything of that, because I was... To them, I was Jewish. So I, it was like I was dirty mm -hmm. blood either way. Oh, wow. You know? Whatever, every group of people have that cultural mix. I think in America for black folk, it's always been sort of that bl half black, half white thing where you're not black enough or white enough, depending. And then if you're half Japanese, half Korean, or half you know, Puerto Rican, half Dominican, there's always these sort of cultures that are put against each other and the children who are caught in those, those lines in the sand. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I'm certainly not complaining as a white man in America. I've had my fair share of advantages. Um, but it, it, culturally, you, you go through stigmas and all, that, all the types of things that people do to each other in that way. And uh, so the, the type of... The, my background culturally is so mixed. Ethnically, it's... Yeah, it in sounds terms like of white it. is very mixed. And then when I did my DNA test, it was pretty wacky. Oh, you did one of those? Yeah, I just, I just had to know. I knew my mom was talking crazy. <laughs> you know? And she, you have like a she had small passed percentage away, like and African I was just Indian. like... Well, she had always said that, we, that she was part Native American, okay. which I think everybody claims in the Northeast or anywhere on the East Coast. Everybody's like, yeah, I'm part something. And occasionally somebody pops up and gets some checks for that, you know, mm -hmm. from some mm -hmm. casino checks. I know a guy that happened to... Um, and so my mom looking kind of like she could even be even like a, a fourth native mm -hmm. in some kind of way so you're like i just gotta find I out i was like let me just see so there was none of that 
uh-huh. none of that. But there wasn't as much German as I thought, and there was a lot of just mixed European, like really mixed European. And then there was my father's side, which was that region of edge of Russia and near those other borders. So it was very blurry. And then two percent uh, Northern Africa. I heard which the- I would assume would be Egypt, maybe the Jewish connection, the Middle East. Yeah, yeah, possible. Um, yeah, and that could be. They they can't trace that back thousands of years, so that would have to be fairly recent. Yeah. So it would have to be somewhere in probably my father's parents' background. Someone recently had a little bit more of that. So yeah. mm-hmm. I, it would be interesting to see how many white people have taken that test and just didn't show everybody. Because <laughs> well, black people, they expect to have some percentage of white in America, like 2%, 5%. Occasionally somebody's like, fuck, I'm 20%. Who knew? But yeah. with white, you pretty much, you know, you know how white Americans are. It's like if you're... It doesn't. You could be broke or anything, but if you're white, there's somehow you're just okay. In, yeah, my, in your my head. boy, my boy says he's African because he got like two percent in them on, off the test. Yeah, I don't think he's and getting like, passed for I'm that. Like, hey, uh, my, hey, Look, right. I, I, in my neighborhood, I, I, I wouldn't say I got a pass. I got an escort. Mm-hmm. There so, you go. But you know, I think anywhere you're from, you're from yeah. that street and that block and that family, and once you get outside of there, you have to start thinking about it. I never thought about it. I never even thought about that I would be Jewish until someone called me a Jew. And I was like, what do you mean? Yeah, I didn't I didn't really I, I was like, it's a religion. So Yeah. But, you know, it's not. Like it's it's as much of be people look at Jewish people the way they look at any other group. You know, it's like if you're black, you're black because maybe your skin might show that. You're Jewish, it's like you can't say, oh I you know I don't, I'm not Jewish. I'm not practicing Jew. I'm not, by Jewish law, Jewish. They go, nah, man, you're fucking Jew. Yeah, but just deferred, like, All right, yeah. I guess, uh, yeah. I guess I'm going to mm-hmm. ride out with that, man. Merry Christmas. Jeez. Wow. You know, it's, a, it's, a crazy, it's a crazy world, and I think, I always, I talk about that with a lot of my friends in my neighborhood with, with black folk, is that the, 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 my, there's a inherent thing that you know what you are when you look in the mirror and you have to deal with that reality with yourself and then when you go out in in a world that is predominantly something else at least in this immediate um and so there's a certain as much pain as there is in that then which i i can't possibly identify with um there's a certain certainty in knowing that you are black and i think with white people they get very confused about it it's like they have to wave an irish flag or an Italian flag. They they can't. They have to latch on to something because being white is just not enough. They have to then subdivide and subdivide. Mm. And regardless of white privilege or any other things that might come with that, white people are there's like a weird sort of identity crisis for white people. Yeah, and I think well, I think on a global level that sort of white supremacist mindset is it's, it's prevalent. It, it was paranoia. Yeah, you yeah. Know, that we, that. You know, I think when you're white, you kind of believe that you're the benchmark and everything else is sort of like what level of tolerance you're going to have for things. You know, like if you, if you grow up super liberal like me, you just like kumbaya, you know, the whole world, we're all one. But I think subconsciously with messages and advertising, we get we get made to believe that, you know, that, hey, this is the benchmark. You should have, have what we have and sound like us and be this way and, you know, not. And that's that's just fucked up. Yeah, it's and subconscious. It's, and it is, and, and it's, it's also insidious. It's perpetuated. It's yeah. perpetuated. You know, whatever whatever the plan may have been, whether it was 
whether it was laid out that way or whether it evolved that way doesn't really matter. We're, we're all dealing with the effects together on the back end and perpetuating the shit. And so I think, you know, it, it just seems like that sort of disparity and that illusion is, like you're saying, is more prevalent. And to bring it full circle, is that it, you see it in sneaker culture. You see it in hip-hop. When I came up, when I was coming up through hip-hop in the 80s, it was a very different experience because it was, hip-hop was black and Latino. And, and specifically East Coast Latino. So we're talking about Puerto Rican and I guess peripherally some Dominican. And then it made its way to LA and then you know, it was Mexican. There was their interpretation of it. Mm. But now, um, I, now we're in a, in a place where there's sneakerheads and hip-hop heads and these people that are into streetwear and street culture and all this, and they're Trump supporters. And they're, I've, I've met them, full-on conservatives out here in, this, in these virtual fashion streets, listening to trap and doing their thing. And it, it, to me, it's, it's, a, it, I mean, it's room for everybody, right? But, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's very interesting to see it, right? It, I mean, they have as much right to enjoy the entertainment that's being sold to them and you know we can all present our arguments and i can completely emphatically disagree with you and you can disagree with me but that doesn't that doesn't give me because i'm closer to this culture than you doesn't give me entitlement to its possession like i don't get to own hip hop you can fucking hate obama and love trump and love hip hop and buy it and i'll see you in the club i guess you know like <laughs> and i and i'm believe me there's people in in the industry they're there, you know. I would never yeah. out people. I've never, you know. It's it, they, they got to go through their own shit. But it's it's very interesting. All those cultural, all that sort of thing is. I'm watching it percolate into sneaker culture and into streetwear and these sort of interesting as as the hood is becoming connected to the world and it's no longer regional trends. It's global trends. And we're seeing this very different kind of emergence of people coming out of tiny little neighborhoods in 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 Memphis in a black neighborhood in Memphis and they know what's going on on Lafayette Street mm-hmm. you know and so does you know this kid who's a hunter coal miner son you know real maybe he's racist maybe he's not but he's very conservative and he knows what's happening on Lafayette too and he likes Supreme too yeah hey mm. you know it's a very it's very interesting I know this is all over the fucking place for you listeners but these are the things I really don't get to talk about that come into the analytical process. All this kind of thinking is what went into the menthols. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of like hypocrisy? There's not all there. You guys can't see you who are listening, but there's five of us here, four including myself, and there's not anybody that I've ever met in my life that isn't a hypocrite, because that's the nature of being human. Is that you know we like to say these absolutes and then you know do as I say, not as I do. You know. And everybody is doing something that is objectionable or against their own ethics or yeah, or by you know saying you better recycle over here and then buying you know Air Force Ones mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that are God knows where those extra chemicals are going and well, to what real. river yeah yeah mm-hmm. or, you know so we all live in hypocrisy we're all fucking idiots so um kumbaya motherfuckers I, I think it's all like. To that point, it's like a divisive mechanism. Like yeah. recently, I've been starting to like realize that, like, yo, I'm just like, if you're a kind guy, 
I'm on your side. Yeah, I'm man. on team kind guy. Hundred percent. I'm on team nice guy. Like hundred percent. Simple just, as said. Fighting nice the, fighting the race war is exhausting. Yeah. You know, like yeah. fighting against the race war, I should say. You know, it's like trying to justify myself to people, what I am, who I am, what I do, why I do it, where I come from. You're not from this city. You're from that city. I, man, I, I'm tired of being 80 different things. People get bored with this stuff. It really doesn't hold up to your audience, I'm sure. You'd be surprised. Really? People like this is something that people really. Oh, but this isn't a sneaker podcast. It. I mean, it's by not. default, it's it, it's it's not. I mean, we right. we actually do. we don't put we don't box ourselves in that no, world. But no. we, we kind of saw you as like, let's get your story because we kind of get. Well, we definitely got some of it. <laughs> I mean, like if, if anything, people boxed you in. I think. Yeah, they do, but that's so, just the nature of things. Yeah, you know? and I, you know, even me, I was going through like the Reddit, and I'm just like, how many times are we gonna ask about the shoe? Like, I was just like, were you? Oh, yeah. you were looking at that. I was looking through the Reddit today. I'm just like, how many I, times are we gonna ask you about the shoe? I'm like, there's so much more to ask you about that. I think it's like, the, the Vice thing only know. happened because I pushed that same thing you said. Is that everyone keeps telling the same story, and I'm like, we know, uh, and it's not. I'm not some. I'm not a dickhead. I, I'm. I want to talk about these things. I just don't want to tell that same story over and over because I feel like an idiot, like just talking about it. Sort of dumbed down. I think right, everybody yeah. now can talk about it amongst themselves if they're interested. But so much in in the Vice interview, um, it was really great. We filmed for three days to get that 15 minutes, and so it really only barely touched on a few things. And mm -hmm. we did, you know, I knew it would be short, so I tried to give them everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I but think they did do a good job. They did a great at, job at they really covering did. more than that. Because then you did talk about your background. You did. You they know gave what I mean? me that. And yeah. I, and that was it. Was I, and I told them I said, look, I'm not going to talk about it unless we can talk about. It. And they were they were into that. I mean, Vice by its nature is subversive. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean that's how they sell product. I suppose it's just yeah. by pissing groups off, right, mm -hmm. with other groups or something. Um, so it, it it really it was really good, and I think it. it Maybe to your guys' point is that you're here because of the extra little bits that are there. Because everything else is the same. There's no. Mm -hmm. I interject just like I did. I try to force my story into it, um, but it just ends up getting edited out. It's just sneaker kids want to hear like the colorway of the day, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that gets the views. Yeah. Yeah. That and gets I, the I get it, but there's. People have to recognize that I'm I'm a grown ass fucking man, you know. Like, and I, I'll I'll play with toys, you know. The sneaker the sneakers are toys, but there's a, there's an extent at which, by a colorway doesn't excite me. A a reason excites me. So some collaborations have rationale; they have a reason. And even sometimes it's minuscule. But that's at least something to latch on to. But a colorway is not very exciting to me unless it was just like, you know, just crazy. Mm -hmm. I'm always, you know, I always like camo things. I've never bought any of the camo Nikes in the various, you know, Air Maxes or whatever they made. But I always, I like seeing that from a sneaker nerd, you know, unsatisfied child, you know, kind of point of view. But, um, you know, then I, then I turn around and think, well, if I wear this camouflage, this is an American camouflage. And if you wear that going through Turkey, that's a problem. 
Mm. You know, if you're in Turkey wearing American camouflage pants, that could be a problem. That could be a problem if you're passing, through, you know, a certain country in the Middle East, and you you just don't think about because to us it's a cultural pattern, it's a fun thing. To other people, it represents evil. And those are the kinds of things, the subtleties that I tend to look at a little bit more, and sort of the driving. That's why you never the bought. Menthols, you know. Mm. That's why you never bought any. Bought what the camo ones? Yeah. No, I just, um, it, it you know depends on the price point, and it was easier to buy sneakers back in the day, you know. And so I'm not big on that aftermarket price. And mm. so if I don't, if it's a GR, I buy GR stuff, you know. Anything general release, I'm down with that. And if you know, I know people at these boutiques and stuff. I really want something, I'll hit somebody up somewhere. Have them look out or trade something, you know, mm-hmm. out of my stash. Or, but for the most part, I just I'm not going to pay that price. It was a ninety dollar, you know, on sale Air Max GR. Buy it. Listen, hey, 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 all you sneakerheads out there, buy general release stuff from Foot Locker that you know is hot. Put it in your goddamn closet and pull it out in five years, and people are going to wish they had. You get so much. I got um, outlet stuff. 1999 that people would you know they they want to cut my hand off to get now Jeez. I'm like 1999 in Vegas at the outlet <laughs> suckers <laughs> <laughs> I but you know I figured that out early because by the time let's say by the year 2000 there was stuff I still wanted from the 80s when you know in the 90s when I didn't have any cash whatsoever mm-hmm. so I was v- retroactively hunting you know like you know I was like I, I want those mm-hmm the, I, there was no such thing as a reissue then unless they just kept reissuing they just kept putting out colorways but they weren't reissuing like other than like the 95 and you know OG colorway and those sort of things but um, no even today like you'll see your boy or my boy I'll be like oh those shoes are fire where'd you get them you think they're like some <laughs> old crazy oh I got them from Foot Locker three years ago I was like what whoa oh you know you know you know what it is is you, you buy from foot, the Foot Lockers in other countries not Sometimes literally Foot Locker, but whatever their chain is, like, uh, you know, in England, it's, um... Um, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, what is it? I've ordered from there a bunch of times. Um, it's, um, uh, sport, uh... Oh, man, hold on, don't do this. How many times have I ordered Sneaker Mart brain? No, no, it's... <laughs> anyways... They, they had their own... But I know what you mean. They had their own releases with like they do their own Air colorways Forces, and their, their own cute, colorways. You know, Twenty thousand yeah. pairs, fifty thousand oh, wow. oh, pairs. Man, what is it? But the thing is, they won't sell here. Mm. So it does. Hundred people, hundred thousand people can have it in Europe. But if you're the only one in New York, it feels pretty good, you know. Yeah. Right. I did. I think the the last time I I bought some Adidas Boosts, NMDs. Um, that was a J, uh, JD, JD Sport. Sports. Boom. Yeah, JD Sport. And they still put out those exclusives. And they did. Yeah. And this was only like two years ago. And I wanted a pair. And they were a little bit more, you know, that pound. Pounds you into the ground, that fucking pound. It's it's such a hefty currency. So I bought them. And I bought three pairs with it. And walked down to Stadium Goods and dropped them in there. And that paid for my pair and shipping and a meal. And I got basically I got the pair for free. That was my way to justify. I was like, oh, if I'm going to order from JD Sport and I'm going to go with the shipping, why not get three or four pair? And I just threw them up in there. Did I, I probably just fucked somebody's game up with that. <laughs> I probably just ruined some resellers, some petty resellers' game. With Have that. you you've sold re, uh, you've resold sneakers? Oh, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. I used to, in the early days, I got on eBay. A fish, I got on eBay before 2001, so I guess it's probably 
I think eBay started in 99. So maybe around 2000 I probably hit. But in 2001, I, it's when I, I've been on since with the same username. And I started connecting back then. There wasn't what people call sneaker culture that was just, you know, like, just a, there's just a handful of people around. And so I connected with salesmen, the guys that get the rep, like the rep... If, you, if you're a sales rep for Nike, you get a catalog and then a bunch of general release samples. And you take those around to the accounts and you show them. And they say, oh, you know, Nike insists that you buy certain amounts of certain sneakers. And then other things you can say, oh, yeah, give me 20 of these or 50 pairs of those. This is still today or it's different? This is still the same. But it the, the game has changed. Um, I, they probably do a lot of it digitally. Right. But you have to have, you know, there's still some of that traditional thing there. Um, but I think... I suspect it's more digital, but the salesmen afterwards, they just could do whatever they wanted with the shoes. Like, it's no point in sending them back. What are they going to do with them? They've already been greased up and pawed at, so they would sell them. And so I would link up with these guys through eBay, like slide into what would be the equivalent of their DM, which is just send them a side message. Say, look, you're selling these samples. You know, do you have more? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, I got three boxes. All right, I'll give you, you know. $500 for these three boxes. And then I'd have to take their crap GR, you know, like Ace 83s that no one would buy that I would wear. And, mm -hmm. But then the hot shit, I would take, I would either, I would sell to celebs or whatever, whoever I knew. And then, um, you guys know Union? Remember Union? Yeah. They still have it in LA. But Union is where Stussy is now here in New York. Yeah. Union is owned by James Jebbia, you know, who built Supreme. Supreme yeah. And so, um, his partner in Union is uh, this woman, Marianne. And she's sort of like the godmother in many ways to streetwear in New York mm -hmm. because that, that was the only right? outlet. Huh? Yeah. X-Wave, right? Or something like that? More or less, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they were an item. And he, James is really a great guy regardless of what you think of the brand. It doesn't really matter. He's a good guy and he takes care of his team and he takes care of his people. And Marianne's just a sweetheart and great. And they were really embracing to the culture and the local kids around here. And I was this transplant from Philly 25 years ago. And and uh, Marianne would, you know, she's like, yeah, you can sell those here. We, You make money, I make money, everybody makes money. So I bring in samples and sell them over at Union um, and whatever, you know, sell them out of the, you know, out of my apartment. I have pictures somewhere of them spread out in this apartment even spread out across the floor 16 years ago um and then i made connects in la and i had a connect in we'll just say downtown la i don't want to blow their spot up and they would get boxes of shit in and they would let me rifle through it and then as everybody knew more and more what they had the, the salesman they started getting pickier and pickier like only wanting to give you the, the real crap and then they they People would come in and start reserving it. Then it was like first come, first serve. And eventually it's just like the salesman. Then Nike started to spank the salesman. And they were like, return the samples. Right. But not before. I, I still have a bunch in storage. I have some great, I have a pair of 95s that are this like Paul Brown. These different shades of brown. Cafe con leche, chocolate brown kind of thing. And the GR had speckles on the, on the sole. And I have a pair without it, without the speckles. So... I guess oh. in some ways it's one of one, factory, direct. Shit. Um, in, in the sample bag, still with the sample stickers. Yeah, I, I think I saw one. There was a video of you with the bag. Okay. Said, that's the bag that they, the sales reps have the yeah. sneakers in. 
Looks like a big ass Ziploc bag. And just for storage, I like to stack my things up like Legos. So I would go to like Foot Locker or whatever and get the the, the boxes out of the trash. And then I made my own little stickers that look like <laughs> Nike stickers. <laughs> but they're yellow so that when they're in the stack, I could see the ones that had that. And I, I knew. So even now in my stash, it's still like there's mad yellow stickers on boxes. It was a, it was it was an interesting thing. And oh, that the, I think the first pair of shoes I bought on eBay were '95s, and they were GRs from England. Mm. And it was it was one of two pairs, but they both of them were very odd materials for back then that they didn't really do in the U.S. And I think. I think they both had jewels on them. If for you guys that don't know what jewels, it's like when they do that bubble plastic swoosh. And people don't realize on the 95, which has a small swoosh, they actually did gel, uh, gem, gel, what did I call it? Jewel. Jewel, yeah. Jewel swooshes. Tiny little ones in the back. And that's how you, and those, when it had the jewel, I think they were called XL. So it would be like an Air Max 95 XL or something like that. And that'd be the difference. Yeah, that would be... Oh, shoot. Yeah, that would... If I remember correctly. Wow. You know, it, uh, it's... Uh, you, when you don't practice, you forget. So <laughs> I'm not sitting around like forums talking about this stuff. <laughs> uh, what else you got on your questionnaire there, Captain? I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm also just curious, like, you know, w- with all this knowledge... Knowledge is a very liberal word you're using. (laughs) With all of this information Mm -hmm. or data, correct. um, What 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 do you what do you what do you what did you use with all of this? You know, it's like what do you have like twenty plus years of, you know, marketing experience? I guess really more than that. Um, Twenty years in the business that I've had is experiential marketing company. Which for those of you don't know what experiential is, it's literally like it sounds. It's the marketing that you experience. So it's like tours, sampling. Pop-ups, shops, that sort of thing. Uh, I, I only did a little bit of the cool stuff, so don't go looking for it. <laughs> There's a couple of things. There's like a couple of cool Nike things that might be out there somewhere that you might find. But other than that, you know, like it's like Depends and brawny paper towels and Starbucks mm. back in the day. Anyways, that information, honestly, I'm still trying to figure out what it is. And I'd probably die. You know, I'll probably go to the grave with not having really utilized what that information is. It, I think to utilize that information properly would be akin to like being a tarot card reader or a psychic advisor. There's a certain amount of like hustle in it that I'm un, I'm not, I would never do. I'm just not. If they call them futurists now. Oh, is that what it's, it's called? Yeah, I mean, pretty much like people who futurist. Yeah, that's an actual thing. I don't believe in the future. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I I don't. It, was that the the question in total, basically? Yeah, because it's just like you know, you have all this experience and you know no. firsthand. You know, it's not like you know you you read it in a book. You no. lived it. Yeah. You know? Um, it the menthols. You know, it's 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 a perfect question. I wish somebody would have asked me that before in all those damn interviews. Um, the menthols were were the culmination of that angst and that accumulating of information and having worked in marketing, having worked with corporations, having worked pushing my own magazine with my team and and having um, 
understood marketing at a very socio-economic cultural level, the types of things that you can't really put data to, that the Nielsen rating system can't you know, adjust for. And so people follow very blindly the structured way that data is collected and disseminated and sold, the way that that data is used in, in, a, in a, um, a, a digital sense and analog, you know, in mm. a very traditional way is data is controlled and owned like diamonds and oil and it's used in a certain way. And there's a certain intuition, like whatever your cultural background is, you have an intuition about the things of your culture. And intuition is this nice way to say that there is unspoken common things that you can see. The same way that you might be able to tell somebody is something of an, like you might tell their racial background down to a country because of certain slight bone structure things or the way that they use a gesture of their head or their hand that's only of these people. It's a generalization, but those are things that are hard to quantify. And so when you're looking at years of growing up in the streets of three different cities and working in corporate America, working on your own as an entrepreneur to push a magazine in the streets, doing marketing by hand with stickers and breaking the law and stealing things, and there's, you come with all this information. And when you try to put that information into a packaged context to sell, like you said, what do you do with that information without the data that is then justified by these other forms of, of, of traditional data collecting, which are fudged a lot of ways, you really can't sell it. So people just have to take the leap of faith with you, and they generally will not, because people are automatons, and they go through college in a way to say, hey, this is the conventional way of doing things. This is, this is you, the structure, yeah. Yeah, you're not going to come in here with mm-hmm. any kind of radicalized thoughts, because you seem like a kook to me. You know, We're normal over here, and you're a kook. And so I, w- with the menthols, it was really like I, I set out to make a case study because I had case studies, many case studies. I have hundreds and hundreds of case studies of things that I've done in corporate America. But I had nothing of a case study that proved what corporate America would not listen to me. I didn't have the data. So, and it wasn't that I was trying to sell them on that. It was just I was trying to justify my... I was trying to validate my experience. And I saw the, the hypocrisy in corporate America, and I saw the hypocrisy in all of us, and I saw the hypocrisy in sneaker culture, and I saw all these things, and I said, okay, this menthol project, it's the perfect sort of thing that at any level, if you just are like, oh, man, that's crazy, it's Newport, it's, you know, it's, it's you know, some hood shit, or whether mm-hmm. it's, um, wow, he went, you know, he went and fought the bullies of corporate America. Anywhere in between, from that, from one side to the other side, there was something in there for everybody. And why it worked, when it worked, how it worked, why it was packaged, all of it is right there in front of everybody. And that is the culmination of my knowledge. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, what's the, the term that people use? It's, it's not my life's work, um, but it is, I don't know, I can't think of the term, but it's like a thesis, you know, or something of that nature, where it is, it is this work that validates everything that came before it and mm-hmm. proved it. it it's, it's, it's its own data. And people could say anything they want about my opinions and my ideas and, and my experiences, and they can discredit it all they want. If I don't have any data, but they can't take that away because it proved itself. Yes, yes. It should not have worked. Mm-hmm. By every 
rule in the book, it should not have worked. And anyone could can you know say, look, you got lucky, motherfucker. And there's there's a certain amount of that there, but um, I you know I didn't know to what degree it would work, but I knew that it was real. Yeah. So and I knew that it wasn't. I knew that I was going to bootleg. And that in of itself is wrong. And I was I was going to a knock. I mean, there's nothing worse than something fake. And I understood having watched Nike, having watched the business, and then watching Nego create, use essentially what was theft and make it into luxury. And I said, oh, this, this can go further. And to me, it became this as I've said before, uh, a Trojan horse. And it was like, it could be anything it wanted to anybody. And if you could care less about sneakers, it was an interesting story. And if you love sneakers, it, ha it, it, it had depth and it was robust. And if you were just somebody that liked hood shit, you had that. And I covered the bases and I proved that you could take something that should be worthless, conceptually, and give it such meaning and such a powerful reason for being. And combine that with the, the provenance or the, or the resume that I had of what I, what the hands that I had passed through in corporate America that it could be, it, it didn't mean that it would work, that it would have the sustained value but it, it was important even if it ended up being only worth five dollars, that I knew it was important and it would be important to certain people the fact that I positioned it as a luxury item with all sincerity because I put my intellectual prowess into it to whatever degree that is, that gave it, that's all luxury is, is sophistication. And sophistication is not about socioeconomic class. Sophistication is about being worldly. And I brought all the worldly experiences that I had gone through in three years in corporate America, I mean, in uh, three cities, and then into corporate America and, and being a magazine publisher on our own and, and that hustle. And you know, and it's almost a science. Like I could almost break it down, and it doesn't make it guaranteed. But there are no calculated risks are really calculated. Otherwise, they're just fucking lottery tickets, you know. And so you've calculated to a point where the odds are that you will succeed. For me, it wasn't. I threw the money down the hole. There's no recoup on that. There's later recoup off the rep of it, but there's no recoup on the item, and that's something that people don't understand. Corporations understand it to a degree. People think, oh, Nike's making all this money off the culture. You'd be surprised how much money Nike doesn't make off the culture compared to middle America who's going to Models and buying Nikes. It's and still buying. very niche in a way. Yeah, it is very yeah. niche. And that may, that could, at this point, that could be a billion dollars, right? But we're talking about trillion dollar companies now at this, at this stage of the game. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not... I remember when Nike was talking about $700 million annual report. Like, that was fucking crazy. And now it's like a billion. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. What's Goat that? made a billion last year. <laughs> you know, or whatever. And it, it's, it's very interesting. It is a niche. It, it's, a, it's a niche market. It's a valuable niche market. And it's bigger now. But mm -hmm. in general, whatever the quick strike or hyper strike is, is marketing. To, to shockwave out so that people go and buy the GR junk. Mm -hmm. So since the shoe happened, the mental happened and everything, are you, because what you wanted to do was, I guess, start a discussion, bring something to the, f now that it happened, are you happy with 
I am. The dialogue that I'm so grateful. Like it almost brings a tear to my eye. Like you're happy I'm with the response. Guy, you know, <laughs> I am. I'm happy. If it didn't, ha- you wouldn't be here. You know, and I wouldn't have this opportunity to kind of say, look, this is my experience. Maybe there's someone out there that relates to it. Maybe someone out there is like, this guy's a piece of shit. I can't stand listening to him. You know. But all of that is part of the dialogue. So, yeah. And and it's very satisfying that way. And, and the fact, here we are, for me, it's 15 years later. It's 13, almost 14 years later in actuality. But the the, con- the, the concepting of it, I mean, look at my... People don't know. You see that De La Soul cover? Yeah. Uh, it, what are, we're looking at here, for you that are listening... Thank you. There's a cover of the magazine. Um, my magazine was called On The Go. And that's... It's just a parody term. It's a very generic term. And on the cover is De La Soul. It look, the cover looks like a Newport pleasure ad, you know, like Alive with Pleasure. And it has De La Soul holding like a, a play school child mic and like colored vinyl, like a red album. And they're looking like they're kids. Um, or they're, they're, looking, they're looking goofy like in a Newport ad. And it says, instead of saying Alive with play, Pleasure, it says Alive Under Pressure. And that's something that um, Espo came up with. And... The, the thing there was is that De La Soul had Three Feet High and Rising, which was this pivotal moment in hip-hop of sort of like suburban meets urban hip-hop that was smarter than the hip-hop around it. And, but they were being billed as these hip-hop hippies, and they were being forced to try and recreate that. And so they were under pressure from their record label and from the industry and from their fans to be these guys again. And so they were just trying to be who they have become and what we know them as now and not be the hip-hop hippies that they were labeled as. And so that happened in 95, 96. You guys took that photo for the magazine? Yeah, no, we did that. We shot that in a a studio. I think, I don't remember whose studio that was. It might have been Jean-Michel Gaillot. It was a guy that we used a lot, but I I hope I'm not getting that wrong. But that was in 96. Mm -hmm. The Menthol 10s, which is like Air Force One, and like, cigarettes 100s you know that was 10 years after that so the menthol 10s are 10 because that's the 10 year anniversary of that cover Uh which nobody that story always gets edited out because it just kind of doesn't mean anything so there's nothing in that sneaker that doesn't mean something every everything on the sole every aspect of that sneaker people just look at what it is everything on the box you point to anything and I'll give you the rationale the the three it's a because it's the third uh, incarnation of on the go, on the go magazine, uh-huh. on the go marketing, my marketing company, and on the go, third, which is which was the LLC I created for the sneaker. Right. There's not anything you can see on that box, mm-hmm. anything you can see in that sneaker. There's in red. Why that color? Why that number? Why this is there? Why? There's nothing that doesn't have purpose. Mm-hmm. There's no. You're not going to catch me out there with no frivolous shit on there. So was there anything you would have changed? It, it would like only be in retrospect. Like, oh, I wish. Uh, like, oh man, I don't. Yeah, it was a little bulbous in the toe. Oh. That bothered me a little bit. But sometimes Nikes look like that too. So, I like the way yours is shaped. It's it's almost yours almost looks like a fake Air Force One because of what they had to do to give it that unique shape. No, it also <laughs> looks it also <laughs> looks like it a is, kid's version. If you look at a kid's Air Force yeah. One, it the toe box looks a little better. Then yeah. if you're wearing a size 12 Air yeah. Force One, it just look, they immediately bubble up and look like clown shoes. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's the luck of the draw, the factory, your shoe size. 
And you know, there's only so much control I could exercise in China to do that. Mm-hmm. And my the sizing in 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 the menthol tens is truer truer to a true size, not true to Nike. Nike is sort of the benchmark of sizing. So I watch people, you know, buy it in the aftermarket now to wear them, and I'm like, uh, I, I'm cringing. You guys can't see that um, because let's say if you if you're out there and you're about to pay your life savings. For a pair of these menthols, I don't, I, you know, I'm not condoning that. I'm telling you, if you do that, whatever your size is, if you're a true Nike 9, buy the size 8 because it's a size bigger. I'm a true 9, and I had to wear a size 8 in my, in my own sneakers. Like the 9, I was fishing in those things. But if you're slightly fat-footed, you know, some people got fatter feet because they're just heavier that way, yeah. or if you're kind of like... One foot's longer, or you're flirting with a nine and a half to yeah, ten. Bunch of goofs, yeah. Yeah, I've had people tell me like, "No, it fit perfect," and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah. You know, but and no half sizes. No half size. It was. I had to pay for the mold of each shoe. Right. And that's thousands of dollars each mold. So I was like, "Fuck that! You're gonna make it. You got to commit." <laughs> and that's why, if you see inside the shoe, some people have noticed it. It says, "If it doesn't fit, take the insole out." And that was just to say, like, if it's too loose, whatever. But if it's too tight, just take the insole out. And that's, that's what we used to do. We'd buy what we could. And I'm sure kids still do that. But mm-hmm. nowadays, you can kind of complain your way into the right size, I'm sure. <laughs> Meaning, like, they're really... It, it almost seems like there's quarter sizes these days. Mm-hmm. That, hey, maybe, the, maybe that's the new Lux thing, quarter sizes. What's say so mm. there's Quick Strike, Hyper Strike, and how about, you know, like, Warp Strike or something, you know, and, some dork shit and you <laughs> you get it's so luxe you pay yeah, an extra hundred dollars so and get a quarter size yeah. I mean the next sustainable that's part thing. of the new Nike ID lab in, yeah. in, in Soho yeah get up on it <laughs> so like with all this being said like it all kind of sort of seems like a taboo in a way taboo. sort of like everything that you kind of like have done like mm-hmm. do you think your shoe would be morally like accepted now if More now, it. Yeah, it was like, less oh, accepted yeah, then. Even. Yeah, it was less accepted then. Uh, somebody asked me this recently, and they were like, "Do you think it?" They were like, "Do you think it had the same success?" I was like, "It would be bigger, way bigger, but it would be more polarizing." And I think that you know there would be instead of just this, it's like there's the sneaker community, and then there's just a small group of people within the sneaker community that know about it, and more people stumble onto it every day. But there's there's people out there that. You know, when they see my sneaker and they're like, that shit is a, the tra- Travis Scott did, you know, he, he bit that from Travis Scott. They don't even know it's old. You know, like there's no, Ugh. there's no, pre- and that's fine. You know, like we all yeah. get in the game at some point. Like everybody sucks at skating or writing or, you know, your first pair of sneakers, you, you, you know, you should be embarrassed about. Um, yeah, but doesn't that just kind of like, you know. No, look, it hurts, you know, I'm, I'm human out here, but, I, you know, I've been through far worse shit than criticism right. about the fucking sneaker. But there is, the interesting thing was, is um, there wasn't social media, it was on the verge. There was, there was MySpace then, and Facebook hadn't taken off. And so there really wasn't, there was still just kind of forums, Nike Talk and those types of similar things, and people were starting websites. So people didn't have a place to just kind of vent about it, so I had a few people run up on me. And talk crazy to me. I was gonna say that. Do people come up to you in the street like, "Hey, can I get a pair?" Thinking they, you know. What oh I mean? no, I get DM'd that every day. Oh wow! Like people are just like, "Yo, I know you're sitting on a pair of ten, son." 
Yo, like, yo, <laughs> yo, you, yo, you a legend. Let me get that size ten. I just imagine that guy wearing like a guinea tea and like, a, <laughs> like a. I mean, look, uh, I, you know what? I, mean, you, I guess what that dude's gonna be richer than I've ever been. <laughs> you know, that dude's gonna he's gonna own everything because you know what? He doesn't know that he shouldn't even ask that dumb question. So he's the guy that's gonna end up with all the real estate because he's gonna buy shit he shouldn't have bought and is gonna pay off. Yeah. Um, but not nah, you know there was and I understood it there's not there really hasn't been anything that anybody said that I don't understand like that shit is garbage that's cancer for your feet yeah that's thank you that's exactly what it's supposed to do I don't smoke I'm straight edge my whole life I had beer a little bit as a teenager I've never had a shot or a mixed drink in my life not one I've never had a glass of wine in my fucking life I don't do drugs. I don't do nothing. I, my older siblings forced me to smoke weed when I was a little kid. I had it again when I was 16. Worst experience of my life. Never touch it again. That's just for me because I'm paranoid to end up like people I know and other people. I mean, you know, I don't recommend it. Everybody should drink and smoke and, and enjoy their life because this shit is boring without it. I'll tell you that much. But there was this, you know, it's like, yeah, it is. It is about that. It is about that. And this is, hopefully, leave this part in. I'm going to tell you something that I've said every time and that didn't happen. And that cigarette industry is just one of the most evil industries there is. I mean, maybe people who buy and sell arms for war. Maybe they're worse, right? Because that's instantaneous terror and death. Smoking is a horrible, vicious thing. It's a long-term killer. So it's survivable, and I'm not defending it. But it's a very interesting thing because it's a business that can hide behind all kinds of things because it's like, hey, if you smoke for 40 years, you get what you deserve kind of thing, you know. Or, no, um, we warned you. Yeah, we warned yeah. you, you know, which they didn't back in the day and it's too late for all of that. Um, in case you didn't know, all the truth campaigns, all anti-tobacco is paid for by the tobacco industry. That's part of the master settlement, agre settlement agreement with the tobacco industry and the federal government. They pay billions of dollars to market against the things that they market for. So the people who are telling you not to smoke are the ones selling you the cigarettes. You can work on that in your brain for a little while. Um, so anyways, they, um, it, 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 the tobacco industry is this horrible industry doing horrible things. Are they any different than McDonald's? That's arguable. Because McDonald's will kill you in 40 years too. Even quicker. Diabetes will creep up on you quicker than lung cancer. But you, there is something redeeming physically from McDonald's. People like to bash it, right? And then they'll love some other brand. You know, like Shake Shack. The fat and the sugar content and the salt content, all that stuff. Diabetes, heart, you know, uh, uh, um, heart attack, you know, who knows, tumors, who knows, colon cancer. We don't know what causes some of these things, but sugar and salt kill. Fat kills, right? But it also has protein, and there are nutrients and vitamins and all these things that come into play with that. So McDonald's does, if you are poor, McDonald's will keep you alive and actually give you nutrients. I'm not defending those motherfuckers either. This is the hypocrisy that I speak about, is that the tobacco industry is the one industry where there's just like, there's nothing redeeming there, right? There just really isn't. However. And it's more available. However, you know. My aunt is dead from it. My mother is is part is dead and in complications to it. It she didn't die from it. My sister had both her breasts removed from 
which they it's they can always say well it's not directly related that's why these things still go on right um my it, my aunt battled for like 17 years that's my doorbell are you expecting something i thought it was a car outside it's what <laughs> oh sounded like an old taxi oh. next time warn me um uh, it's all good. That happens on yeah, every so interview. Uh, it's character. So um, it's 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 context, right? So let's say you guys. You guys all seem like pretty good guys, and maybe you people listening out there, you don't abuse weed. You just smoke it now and again. You don't abuse alcohol. You just drink it once in a while. And cigarettes is just this insidious kind of a thing. But you really, we really don't know how all these other things are slow killing us, right? Mm-hmm. In their own private little way. We just haven't exposed it. We haven't challenged those industries. We, the federal government hasn't gone after these industries. Because if you go after McDonald's, you go after the farmers, you go after the growers, you go after the suppliers, the manufacturers of the packaging. It's not like the tobacco industry, which is a one-stop shop of evil. Right? So we can target them. And they lied in front of, you know, they lied on the stand. And they lied to the public. But here, this is what I really wanted to tell you is that when I was homeless with my mother, and off and on with my siblings and stuff, and my mother was uh, abusing alcohol and abusing pills, um, it was a very, very tough time in my life. And it was very hard to deal with that level of dysfunction as a kid when your parents are that way, or my parent, um, and siblings, and my mom's boyfriend. And it was very abusive. Very, it was just a very rough situation. And my mom smoked two packs a day. Everyone in my family smoked two packs a day. Right, which is if you don't know what two packs a day is like, uh, listeners, your ceiling is yellow every six months, and you've got to paint it over because it's just a straight butter yellow. Wow! Because of the amount of tar that goes up into your roof there, right? So it's so expensive. So you tell me, right? If tobacco is going to kill my mom or kill somebody in my family, it's not going to make them dysfunctional to where they can't work. It doesn't make them drunk. It doesn't make them. strung out where they can't work a job where they're just trying to get a fix so it's relative to me tobacco would be the worst thing in the world because I don't do these other things if my mom would only smoke in two packs a day I would have been a happy child I'd be happy now because she may have not abused her body to the point where other things could creep in and kill her and for me it's relative and that I want tobacco to go away. I want the industry to be banned. Make it an illegal drug, and if people are going to go there, make them crawl through the alleys and get a supplier. You want to you wanna then do it that way, the same way that we legalize weed, criminalize tobacco. But, you know, th- this is a free America, so we can do that, right? Do whatever you want. Fuck it. But my, you know, to my point is that if all I had to worry about was my mom smoking, man, it would have been a different game as a kid. So cigarettes were not going to kill her. Keep this in. Cigarettes were not going to kill her that day. But that fucking alcohol and those pills might have killed her that moment. Mm. And there were nights I wasn't sure. Mm. There were nights I wasn't sure if she was going to wake up with me. That's a horrible fucking thing to feel when you're a kid. You know what I'm saying? So tobacco, it would have been fine. That's a, that's a luxury problem in America when there's other things there. If it's, 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 a, it's an epidemic, tobacco. 
but it's something that we can handle and we can talk about. And for the most part, there's nobody here that doesn't know that it will kill you. There's nobody left. Nobody left. Now the dialogue is Asia. You know, developing nations in Asia where they're eight years old and can buy a pack of cigarettes for 25 cents and there's chain smoking all day. That's the new America of the 1930s. That's where we need to... That's, and it's the same... To, it's still Philip Morris. It's still R.J. Reynolds and the other Asian, you know, companies that are over there exploiting their own people the same way ours did us. Um, but they're there. And everything that they are not allowed to do here, they're doing there now. With absolute reckless abandon. They don't care. So, <clears throat> McDonald's will give you diabetes and kill you. Cigarettes will kill you. Alcohol will kill you. If you, if you work in a stock room with a thousand pairs of sneakers around for 40 years, you're, that's off-gassing so many chemicals that are illegal to use in America that come into, into our hands and may long-term give you liver damage, kidney damage, because your body has to filter those, mm -hmm. those things. And no one can say, it was because you worked in that 99 cent store for 30 years, all those off-gassing chemicals that were illegal um, killed you. So it, you see my point is that it's relative. As evil as tobacco was, and people would come rushing up to me, like, you're pushing tobacco. I was like, no, I'm creating dialogue about tobacco, and I'm creating dialogue about hypocrisy, because you're talking to me about, about me promoting cigarettes romanticizing cigarettes, which was the Trojan horse. I'm here to tell you that I'm anti-tobacco, and I got you thinking about it, even if you had always been anti-tobacco. Me and you were arguing, that person is hearing. Somebody read it on a forum. Something created that dialogue. And I told people, I was like, you're eating McDonald's. What the fuck are you talking to me for? <laughs> Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Yeah. Right. Hypocrisy. Then... I'm a hypocrite, but I never claimed to not be. I'm not on some righteous, you know, I'm not, I'm not a community leader. I'm just telling people in the community to watch out. If that makes me somebody in a community that's that's leading by default, then fine. But I'm not a community. Don't 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 do as I do. You know, hopefully do better than I say. And that's that's the menthols. And for people that I had a woman arguing me to death about it and she was drunk. Oh god. I'm like, what's in your alcohol? It's like, you don't know what's in there. There's no law that says you have, that you get to know. ATF regulates alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, and we don't know the ingredients of any of that shit. Firearms? Metal. Gunpowder. Pretty straightforward. They could be putting anything in there that could kill them just from being around it. We don't know. But that's a whole other ballgame. But tobacco and alcohol? Not controlled. There's no ingredients list. There's no, there's nothing there for you. Mm -hmm. If they put arsenic in there, you don't know. They put ammonia in there, you don't know. Just thankfully, we're in a trend now where people, things are more wholesome, so people want, if, if they actually, you know, Budweiser, I think, is putting the ingredients on there, like hops and sugar and, and love and kisses. Water. <laughs> I know. Hearing this is, it, it makes so much sense why you made the shoe, and it almost like... You are the perfect person to, if this was to ever exist, you were the... Well, thank you. To, you know what I mean? Because of how... There's that story of how passionate you are about what you just spoke about. It's incredible. And again, you know, I, I, I just know many sides. It's not... I, I know all sides of the die. It's not two sides of the coin. You know? And, and the menthols just have all that. You know, they have yeah. hypocrisy built into them. And... There is there. There's no more an American product 
in, than the Amenthal tents. Made in China, conceptualized in America, consumed by Americans, um, in, the, in, in representing different indulgences. It's, you know, those, the Amenthal's are the American dream. Hmm. What's the greatest marketing lesson that you learned from your case study? I don't know. I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> Everything else is, you know, things I've kind of talked about. So it's mm-hmm. like the guns loaded, so to speak. But um, I don't, I don't, what is the greatest marketing lesson? Um, I read a book uh, and I'm not a big reader. So, you know, <laughs> my mom was like a book a day type of a reader. And that was sort of her escape when she would drink or get on pills or something. She would go read a book and just like be in bed for 10 hours reading. Um, and she was really the reader, and I was, so I guess, just the opposite of that. But I, I'm, a, I'm a consumer of information. Like, I really dig, and I take in the visual, and the visual may compel me. And I read, I, I grew up with Taco Bell in Los Angeles. And Taco Bell back then had these little outdoor things that were sort of a parody, um, a parody of a Mexican hacienda. And it was special to me. That experience was very special to me as a kid. It was like going to McDonald's. You know, McDonald's felt special when you were a kid, you know. And I think I still see kids get excited about it. Um, and that was an interesting marketing thing to me about that, right? Um, when I was a kid in L.A. in the 70s, Vans had started in the 60s. And they started really becoming a cultural thing in the 70s. My love affair for shoes, and I'll get back to your question. This will play in. Yeah. My love affair for shoes is because um, I knew that there were skater and surfer dudes that I knew, and they were wearing Vans. So I was like, "Hey, can I go get Vans?" Vans used to be. It, Vans was the nickname, more or less. It was the Van Doren is the family, the Van Doren family, and so the stores were the Van Doren stores, sort of like Buster Brown or McKinney or you know, like uh, whatever Aldo now or Steve Steve Madden. You know, it was like a name brand shoe store, but it was very crude. And you'd go out there, and the factory was only like a mile down the road or something. It was American-made shoe. But you would go into the store, and this is um, 1978, you know, 70, yeah, 1978. Go into the store, and they had swatches. If you don't know what swatches are, it's the samples of material cut into squares. And they had swatches of all the different things. Hawaiian print, checker was pretty new, um, different colors, textures. And you would go in there and you'd point at a sneaker, let's say the van's authentic, and you go, I want the, the toe box, the toe panel, the front panel, red. I want the side panel, blue, and I want the back panel, Hawaiian. You could customize. No, but not just like ID, which seems, you know, which is modern now. The other shoe could be anything it wanted to be. So that one could be black with checkers and green. You could make any shoe any way, and they didn't have to match any kind of way because they just write it down on a form paper, goes down the street to the factory, and you come back a week later, whenever it is, and pick them up. They give you a call. Hey, your vans are ready. That was phenomenal to me. That was marketing. And it was, what was the marketing? It was exclusivity. It was special. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand that then, but I knew mine. No one had mine. Because I could look around and nobody had mine. Because I had my own taste. I had my own way of doing it. And everyone else was buying the GR off the rack. And I was getting it custom made. And it it was special. And I have pictures. I have some couple of pictures of me when I was a kid wearing Mitch Match Vans. 
You don't have them? They're around. They're really, they're really whack. Like they're blurry, and um, wow. I do have them. They're somewhere in here, actually. I think. Oh, that's they so might, cool. I think so. And um, so the what I learned from that, I kind of carried forward, was that that we're all we're all trying to be accepted. So we're all trying to be the same, but we all want to be different within these groups that we're included in. And the marketing of the marketing lessons that I learned from this, it's not learned, that I proved, right. was um, that if you made it special, that if you, if, you, if you didn't fake it, if you didn't, were like, that's a cool idea, right? Um, if you really, if you gave it the sophistication that it deserved, that it would be special. And if we look at a Louis Vuitton bag, I mean, it's just printed leather, right? I mean, how much could it really cost? Even if it's the highest grain leather, it ain't going to cost $8,000 for a duffel bag, <laughs> you know, or whatever. So then it, it comes down to exclusivity and, and access. And I, I, I despise that, and I, and I love it at the same time. And so my way of doing that now is just to buy things that are 30 years old. So I'm not going to see anybody wearing it. I don't need to get the $15,000 shoe because I'm going to go get the one that was $4 that nobody's ever seen. They're, gonna, they're not going to know if it was $1,000 or $5 because it's just about that exclusivity. So the marketing of the special experience, the special thing, to me, it was very validating to say that here's something that I know that these other sneaker brands, they release a $200 or $300 pair of sneakers. I know what they cost. So what are we buying? We're buying the perception of value. And with Nike, they're not even really giving us any sophistication. There's no explanation for it, no nothing. I mean, if you get something from Goyard, you know somebody hand-painted and they did this, and you know, there's, there's a history to it that, you know, that goes back, or you know, Louis Vuitton going back to steamer trunks. And, and it just, you know, I, I felt that, that there was that you could do something that was special, you could have something that was exclusive, you could give it message and purpose, and it could serve all these different gods, and whichever god somebody prayed to, they could find worship in it. You know? Does that make sense? Yeah. That makes sense, yeah. It, it reminds me back to what we were talking about, the burnt down church and the yeah, the bodega. We're all know, praying to was, somebody, ain't we? Yeah. I'm atheist, but I'm praying to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Are you vegan? Oh God, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> my my father in, in being hippie. I just feel like was, you're into like you must be. I I, I am and I'm not. My mother was wild. Like I said, I grew, oh I never even got back to the book and all of that. Damn, I just totally fucked that up. I feel like we just wrote the um we we we, we spoke the audio book of uh, not even the full thing obviously. No, well um I'll I'll finish that thought. Is that my my mother just. She ate whatever. She was pretty savage that way. You know, she was just, you know, she just liked what she liked, and there was some cultural things, and she, she could live off of cigarettes, coffee, Pepsi, and cheese popcorn, you know? And I love her for it, you know? It's, it's, that's my mom, so that's what I remember of her, and it, it's warm to me. But, you know, not nutritionally smart. Yeah. My father, on the other hand, who once, you know, they broke away, he kind of went off and converted to Hinduism and did his thing. He got into a thing called macrobiotics, which makes vegans look like look like chumps, you know. It's imagine veganism, but
but there's everything has to be completely unprocessed. There's no white sugar, white rice, no nothing, no dairy, no any of that. Vegetables can only be seasonal. There's certain vegetables that are just not even not even have been created. You don't eat those. It is rigid. Rigid. No sugars, no it's you can use barley malt or I think I, they may make an exception to molasses, but barley malt is sort of their thing to sweeten things with. They don't use anything processed that way. And it's based on a Japanese diet by a guy, Michio Kushi. I'm probably destroying his name. And so my father was this extreme vegan. Like vegans will go eat Skittles because they're vegan. Sophisticated He would vegan. not even come with the, you know, he won't even touch a Skittle. You know, they, they don't eat it. They'll, you know what candy was for him? They, they, they'd take some kind of like barley malt and molasses and make that Middle Eastern looking kind of stuff. It's like sesame seeds and a, yeah. and a brick. <laughs> that, that's a treat. <laughs> Yeesh. Bon appetit. So, uh, and again, my, my, my family never trying to superimpose one culture onto me. It was like, you know, I got KFC one day and, and then I'd have a macrobiotic meal of simply sim brown rice, kale, and kale in the 80s. You know, no one even knew what kale was. It was like collard greens. what it was. It was like collard greens without the turkey. It just became the thing. It was a mess. And so it's such extreme. It's extreme. And there, there was only chopsticks in my father's house. There was one fork. So, you know, I grew up eating chopsticks. My father is in a nursing home right now, shot out on dementia. Can't, knows who I am, but nothing else. But he can still use his chopsticks in there with that cafeteria food. Wow. It's the craziest wow. shit. He can't, he can't even pick his body all the way up, but he can still use his chopsticks. Wow. A guy of, you know, Russian descent. Jeez. It just culture is is relative, right? Mm -hmm. To whatever it is that you practice long enough and becomes yeah. tradition, right? So, um, and in that is, I grew up on Taco Bell. Uh, I really love Taco Bell. And when I was talking about the marketing thing before, is that um, I read a book by, it's an autobiography by Glenn Bell, the guy that created Taco Bell. And people talk about McDonald's and Ray Kroc, the real genius out here in this fast food world, was Glenn Bell. And um, his reading the way that he approached marketing or um, uh, business development, the way that he approached it was so calculated and so basic. He would get out there and count. He would go to a location when he was, he went through several businesses and partnerships and kept selling successful things to do it his way. Eventually it was just my way or the highway. And he created Taco Bell after, I think the thing before that was Taco Tia. Anyways, he would decide a location for a new Taco Bell after having done research in Mexico to look at little haciendas and make a little Disney-like parody of that for American audience. He created the American taco. It didn't exist. The ta you know how it's ground meat? That was the chili that would go on your chili burger or your chili dog out in California. Mm. And the cheese, you know how they use orange cheese and not Mexican-style cheese? Yeah. They use cheddar because that's what you put on a burger. And the shredded lettuce and the diced tomatoes was just, that was all the burger fixings that it's went familiar. into a corn tortilla mm. that he saw the migrant workers using, the Mexican migrant workers using to roll up real tacos, you know, and eat food in it as a vehicle. He laid that in the fryer over the thing and made it into this sort of formulaic shell to hold and put the, ingre the, the hamburger ingredients in, and that's the American taco. So he marketed that 
through his stand, through his shop, his stand first and then his shop. But when he, the marketing, he would go out to an intersection. And I, man, I, I see so many people here in Soho fail by not doing this. They see volume, but he would look at the volume of people, how many cars would go by, the types of people, the type of day. And from that, he would calculate what potential business he could get from that. Where people, you know, around here in New York could just see there's, man, there's tons of mad people on that street. There's tons of people, but they don't look at the type of people. They don't, look at their, they don't look at them up and down and do their own calculation of the socioeconomic background that they might be possessed. Soho is for you know, middle America to come here and walk around the mall without a roof and look at the brands that they can just get in their mall back home. You know? And you know, if they go to Louis Vuitton, they'll go in there and get a, a wallet or a bag. They can get that in Macy's back home too. So this area is what they call lost leader. It, it, uh, lost leaders are businesses that are open just for the marketing and it's a loss to lead you know the direction there's no giant billboards really in new york except for times square open up a ground store fill it full of stuff everyone gets to experience it they get their hands on it. it's experiential marketing and then if you you can actually sell items so maybe you'll make your rent maybe you'll make your money back but instead of paying eighty thousand dollars for a billboard you pay eighty thousand dollars in rent maybe you make 60 of it back maybe you make 110 maybe you make 20 but it's a win, right? So that, that, that sort of like organic marketing that Glenn Bell did was very instrumental for me in, in the uh, menthols to a certain degree, you know, because these were things that I was thinking and here was this guy that was using gut and using what he knew as common sense and not leaving anything out. He looked at the detail of the, of the restaurant, how it would be designed, how the tacos would be presented, how he could get consistency across locations, he would go to an intersection, figure out it was just every step of the process was passion. And to the, to the point of the menthols, I already, you know, I was already working that way. And there was a reason for me to do it in, in its entirety. It wasn't just for a client where maybe I cut some corners. This was for me. And so I really took that same type of approach. Not because of that, but it was like, wow, this is me. Let me do this. You know, this is what I've been doing. And there it was. Anybody who doesn't look at every... If there's a blind spot, that's where you're going to get shot. That's where you're going to fail. So that, that marketing lesson was there. It was all those things that pulled together, came right in. And it was, here's perceived value. Here's actual value. And what you're buying is... You're not just buying a taco. You're not just buying the menthols. You're buying the experience that I brought to you through my experience. You're buying value. There you go. If you made it through this, then <laughs> then write to P.O. Box for free stickers. <laughs> this shit is not. We should have like a. It's not interesting to anybody but me. <laughs> no, this is this is. People love this shit. You gotta be a. If you've made it this far, congratulations. For. You're a fucking nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you at the Star Trek convention. <laughs> I'll actually be there. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's. I, I didn't like comic books as a kid and like superheroes like dudes flying around with capes and leotards just seemed odd uh, I was more like Godzilla and Mad Magazine was my thing and so um, Star Trek um, kids don't like Star Trek you don't see kids running around like mm. yay Star Trek um, Star Trek is when you're an adult and you get into the socio-political kind of you know racism and gender issues and, and war 
and slavery and all these different issues, they tackle it using aliens. Mm -hmm. Wow. How do you talk about black people? You make them some race with ridges on their heads. You know, how do you talk about Jewish people? You make them look like they have giant ears and giant noses and exaggerate them and make them a financially based culture or planet. It's very interesting. And, and it, wow. there's a lot of things that you can take from that. Star Wars is sort of you and it's, it's not to discredit. I like them both. I love them so both. War. Star Wars, you get it, it's Camelot. You know, it's King Arthur's court and Camelot and good and evil and the bad king and the good king and the bad witch and the good witch. And it's something that kids can digest. And as you get older, you're nostalgic for it. And so you look deeper into the things. But no kid is walking up to an episode of Star Trek on TV and being like, this is incredible. You got to be a smart kid. Um, so yeah, I'll see you at the Star Trek convention. Uh, uh, bring your t-shirts <laughs> and buttons. What's your next marketing trick up your sleeve? Fuck you, you're not getting that. You <laughs> <laughs> fucking crazy? Look, I share everything with everybody. I tell people all, everything I know. I tell them how to do it, where to go, and all this. Because it n none of sharing information isn't threatening because you have to have you have to have a, a resume. You have to do something, or you better steal your ass off, which is what most people do is just steal, 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 steal ideas. Idea theft is like, I mean, that's the real black market. That's crazy. People are. Whew, I'm not even getting into it. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole dark. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. In Instagram is, is is like where you go to lose ideas. Um, hmm. Only put things out there you're prepared to give away. Right. Um, so what's next? I wouldn't dare tell you. Uh, it's not complete. Didn't expect you to. I'm, look, I'm yeah. not a marketing genius. I'm not even a marketing guy. I just I've, I've got a clue about a few things, and really everything else is cultural shit that. I, I put into it and I'm know. still surprised you just said you're not a marketing guy I'm really not because I, you have to understand when I go into marketing meetings these people you know I don't know their acronyms and their terms right. I do by default to some degree I can go in and sort of fake the funk but I didn't get a marketing degree I never went to school for marketing so to own a marketing company for 20 years experiential is kind of like an events company so it's not really marketing that way. It's then as you go through it, you start to get thrown into things. And there was, I've had a couple of clients who went all in. Let me use my brain and my team's brain. And we created nothing. You know, we took another thing, which was something that should have been nothing and gave it all the value and provenance in the world. You know, the, uh, the, this history of changing hands of a brand and all these sorts of things. And it made $80 million for the brand in one year. All money in on our efforts. Wow. And it's it, it, it's the right time. It's the right thing. But we had to pivot. It was, I can't mention the, the brand, but the brand, it's, it's, it's been bought and sold a few times since. But the brand did what, did like the Instagram. You know how Instagram, you see people with their filters and their glamorous life and all this. And, and once in a while, you see somebody you know, you go, ha, you don't live like that. <laughs> you know, you're like, ah, you're a fraud. And it's, you know, we're all insecure and we're just trying to get some love, right? So the brand was positioning itself, sort of like how I was talking about the marketing of these stores down here. It was like, we're making this product and this is what the product is. And we're, and they hired the biggest agency to make it look sexy and it was incredible. And I think the agency had worked on, on the H2 launch, the Hummer 2 launch. So it was like, they had won an award for that and it was really this thing. And they were hiring them to launch this product. And the product 
was awful. And you just can't make up for that, you know? Like, all the sexy marketing in the world, all the celebrity endorsements can't, you know, can't make shit smell like roses, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, you just have to call it shit and, and see if there's a market for it. Um, and they were really trying, and so when we went out to market this product, the, people were like, what? Like, this, this product is awful, and it was awful. Even even they knew it was awful. They were just trying to convince themselves that it wasn't. And the packaging was bad. The only the advertising was good, and it was, it didn't make sense. And it was targeting like, aspiring, workout yoga women, kind of like a Lululemony kind of thing, right? And and it just it it flopped out. But who it appealed to was a market that they didn't understand. And if we, because we were doing experiential marketing, we were out there sampling and working on the ground. We were getting real-time feedback from people who were like, "Oh, I heard about this," and they were the, the, the audience that we were supposed to target. It was the exact opposite. Like if we were targeting humans, it was it was grizzly bears that were showing up. It was it was that it was that opposite. It was that opposite. It was crazy, and we were like, but because we were working brand direct, which means you know working directly with the guys that own the company, it wasn't like shareholders and yeah. CEOs and all this stuff. It was, they were intimate with the company. It was a big company. They said, "All right, we're getting results. Fuck it, you know, like let's let's do it. Let's double, triple down. Let's go in." And we started to target it as something completely different and something that the only parallel was that it was. It, it was good for you in a way. And we targeted a different audience. It was not sexy, it was not good looking, not anything. Boom. It blew up. And so that taught me a marketing lesson that, you know, it's not in the books. And even to this day, people, conventional thinking, if I go in with that same story and I've been in front of the same people, other brands with the same category, even some friends who just were like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, no, no, that's not that's not how this works. That's not what the manual says. That's not what the PDF is saying over here. And you know, how do you how do you market intuition? How do you package and quantify intuition? You have to be that guy that's had so many successes that people just listen to you. But at the end of the day, the data can be argued. You know. Mm. So my next marketing trick up my sleeve. I don't know. When it falls in my lap, I'll send you an email. Nice. But I have good. some ideas. Well, what do you do? You have anything you're working on now that you could share? Some things that people can look out for and check out. Mm -mm. I don't do that. Um, meaning, uh, like I, I'm a slow worker, and you know, talk about it, and some things might not happen, and it's just you know, it's it's better to just do things and talk about them right before they're about to happen. That's kind of the best way. I'm always doing something. It doesn't. It generally doesn't happen. Um, there's I have things in the works and. I don't know, you know, just keep an eye out. In the meantime, I don't, I'm not bullshitting. You see, for those of you that follow my Instagram, at just Ari, just A-R-I, at symbol A-R-I. If you follow my Instagram, um, then you see that I'll just talk about old marketing, old advertising, goofy products. Sometimes I'm very serious. Usually there's some kind of satire in there, or some kind of wit. Sometimes it's all, you know, just crazy. And in there, I'm sort of, you can see where my thinking's at, at this time, and in that moment. And I, there's always clues. Mm -hmm. nice. There's clues in what I do. 
And do you have a website or anything anyone? I do. It's it, I haven't updated it in years because it was so crazy to begin with. It's just uh, re sale. That's sale. People are gonna be like sailboat sale fifty percent off. <laughs> I have I have I have a middle name that you've never heard of. It's S A A L. So that's a double A. Sale is my middle sale. name, and it's it's the nickname for the name Shmuel, which was my grandfather's name. In American, it's Samuel. Sale. Shmuel, Samuel. That's... Look, man, my parents are hippies. <laughs> it actually makes really cultural, religious sense on my uh-huh. father's side. But it is... Yeah, I think it just worked because it's kind of hippie-ish, too, for there them, you, you know. Uh, it's great for me. You know, it's, it's very... It's pretty unique. If they go to the website, Ari Sale, so that's A-R-I-S-A-A-L, or Ari Foreman... And look, just Google anything with... Menthol, it'll all lead you to that path. You'll see my website. It's goofy. I actually need to shut a few things down, open a few things up. It'll look like you have logged back into time. So oh, enjoy yeah, yourself. Like old Microsoft have you got, have you got, desktop, yeah. Uh, Mac OS 7. Mac, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, yep. you know, uh, Apple changed my life, for better or for worse. You can say what you want about that company, but they saved my life to, by, by making their product. So... They, you know, they live in hypocrisy, and I live in hypocrisy. And welcome to hypocrisy, <laughs> Mayor. Show. Mayor, you. Well, thank you. This was an absolute incredible conversation. Well, this thanks, man. Crazy. Uh, next time we'll talk about some sneakers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or not. It'll be fine. So we'll just, we'll just edit everything out and just um, just, <laughs> just just only talk about the sneakers. It'll yeah. be thirty seconds of me yeah. talking about. Like yeah. general release, buying general releases or something? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, thank you again. Thank you for, for having for doing me. this. This was awesome talking, getting to really hear I appreciate your it. story. Uh, and I, I've told you and I tell everybody, you know, and, and to quote hip-hop, if hip-hop were a person, uh, each one teach one. And I, I firmly believe that. It's a lesson I learned in the streets, and it's something that I carry with me. And uh, if I have information, I'll share it. Thank you. And I know our listeners definitely learned thank a you. lot from this. Uh, thank you. you for having me and giving me this platform. I'm not, I don't treat it lightly. Uh, I'm very thankful to even, you know, for people to care. So thank you. Really. Thank you. Go. Thank, thank you, you, Ari. Yes. Peace. Appreciate it. Peace. And for everyone out there, make sure you check us out on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor, all that. Make sure you let us know what you think. Share with your friends. We're really trying to grow this. And if you support us, show it. We really appreciate it. And uh, again, Ari, thank you. Uh, my name's NKNX. Hey, Bar. And enjoy your day. <laughs>